the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello, Justin. Welcome back. Hey, Lindsay. This is our third Scorsese film that we've done for the podcast, which uh, says something. I guess we like the guy, huh? I guess we like Scorsese. You know, I I myself have been a huge fan for probably like 25, 30 years. And Taxi Driver, when we were always going to do a Scorsese movie for the podcast, I always sort of thought that would be the first movie that we would have done instead of Goodfellas (laughs) or Casino. And almost because it feels like a movie in my mind that was just played out. It's been in my top 10 favorite movies for so long. And I think maybe at one point I just kind of got burned out on it. But then we kind of came around to it and I hadn't seen this movie in a couple years. And uh, God, I've watched this movie three times in the last couple weeks and it's utterly watchable. It's such a fascinating character study. And whatever I was thinking that I was burnt out on this movie, I'm not anymore. I'm like, I, I could easily watch this movie tomorrow and totally be fine. And I also think I appreciate this movie more now watching it. I think the first time I saw this is when I was 15, like watching it. I, I just read this movie totally different, but we'll get into some of those thoughts. Th- this was a movie that you had seen many, many times before, right? So I wouldn't say many, many times before. I'd probably say I'd seen this twice before oh, okay, in okay. my high school days. So when we agreed that we were going to do this next, I was totally stoked because I haven't seen it in 20 years. So it was going to be like for real fresh watch. I mean, I know what happens watching it with adult eyes versus high school eyes. Completely different experience. Holy crap. Very happy to revisit this. But I, I got to say, I'm not played out on the movie. I could rewatch it. It's playing in the background right now. I could rewatch it again and again, but living with Travis Bickle for a few weeks compared to any other movie that we've talked about, it is not an understatement to say it's been a little hard living with him in in my head, in my heart. It's real weird, (laughs) but I've thoroughly enjoyed the film. I think most people, you could watch Taxi Driver and you'd find something identifiable in the character. You know, as crazy as that maybe sounds, but I I think there's so many things in this movie that are like highly relatable, especially when you're going through, when you're getting a little bit older and you're going through some sort of like existential crisis or you're like reevaluating your life against other people. And I think even more now, like there wasn't social media during the era of Taxi Driver, but you know, you could transfer the idea of this, of like looking at other people's lives on social media and slowly letting that get, you know, pent up, judging yourself to others and like kind of putting all this uh, sort of like internalized hate or like jealousy and like, you know, letting it bubble over. But the Travis Bickle character is something that is, is kind of wild because he is such a, a menacing character, but he's also like sympathetic. He's, you know, confused, conflicted. There's so many, so many layers to this character. I think it's probably one of the most fascinating character studies that's ever been committed to film. I can't really think of too many movies that are as identifiable and distinct as Taxi Driver, especially when it comes to like a script and a a single 
performance by an actor. I don't want to get hyperbolic about this movie, but really, really do feel like it's such a significant, important movie, even though it at times has its flaws and even though it probably doesn't hold up well under the lens of 2021. But I still think that uh, it, it is a highly, highly watchable movie and 45, 46 years after it's come out is still kind of like shocking audiences and continues to entertain. Well, with that said, and this movie being still important today, and I would say in in a lot of ways is even more relevant compared to 1976. It was important then. It is just as important now. And there is a backstory behind this, the whole inspiration behind it, where writer Paul Schrader was coming from, maybe where he took some stories from. We don't know how Martin Scorsese came to be involved with this film. This was certainly a huge launching film for him in his career and Robert De Niro as well. The whole visual style of the film, the score. Oh my God, the score has just really lived in my heart to the point. I feel a little crazy, but I love it. You know, Um, the cast. Oh my God. Where do we even start with the cast? The cast is just so incredible. But we also have uh, maybe one uh, um, interesting take on on the cast that that you and I both agree on that I think (laughs) a lot of people are going to hate us for. I really want us to get a hate letter for this. Please, someone out there, just tell us. And it's actually the reverse, I think, of what a lot of people think of a particular actor in this movie. So. Yeah, I bet you're right. Because we do agree on someone being really good in it that maybe someone... The other people don't think so. Hmm. You'll have to wait things secret until we get to the cast section. So you can fast forward (laughs) if you want to get right to that. (laughs) Another thing I'm looking forward to talking about is the interpretations and misinterpretations of this film. It really stuck out to me watching this film 20 years after I'd seen it initially, how I felt about it then versus how I felt about it now. The adolescent boys that I watched it with and how they felt about it. This movie is a little too deep for maybe an 18-year-old or younger to understand, even though it is specifically targeting youthful male anger. So I'm looking forward to talking about that specifically. Reception, release of the film, of course, and, oh man, the real-life impact that this film has has had, too. Yeah, life uh, imitating art. Ugh. Yeah. Well, after our discussion on Taxi Driver, we'll of course get into our picks of the week. Well, my pick of the week is Midnight Run. I had to do a Charles Grodin movie. Um, it just uh, felt appropriate. What a loss. Doesn't it really feel like we grew up with a man? Yeah, so many movies from my youth with Charles Grodin. A lot more uh, adult movies, I think, that I watched when I was a kid that had Charles Grodin in them. But Taking Care of Business always has a special place in my heart. But Midnight Run is one of my favorite uh, Grodin movies and also one of my favorite De Niro movies. And what a great pairing of those two. I think my favorites, the first one I remember was The Great Muppet Caper. And then the uh, more adult fare was Seems Like Old Times. I, I think I've rattled on about that movie a couple times on this podcast. I love it. And then him and Dave, it's like a supporting role. He's just so wonderful. Gosh, yeah, Charles Grodin. Felt like I grew up with him. Seemed like a really good guy and very well loved in Hollywood. Yeah, we're losing too many great actors these days. I think that's happening. The older that we get, yeah, like it's weird. I don't like it. Yeah. Me neither. 
Well, R.I.P. Charles Grodin. Thank you for so many years of entertaining us. Yeah, R.I.P. And Lindsay, for your pick of the week, you went with a De Niro comedy as well. If you want to call it a comedy, even though it is called The King of Comedy. Yes, I did. This was a first watch for me. I'm slightly embarrassed to say that. But this has really turned into one of my favorite Scorsese movies. I love that uh, you had never seen this and that you were watching it and then you texted me and you said, I mean, obviously I know that Robert De Niro is like a fantastic actor, but you're like, oh my God, he's so freaking good in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. When you said you were going to pick that movie, I think I kind of, I didn't want to like overbuild it up to say his character's like, I mean, the the screws are so tight and he's like kind of cringy. And like, if you think that Travis Bickle is like hard to watch, interact with people, like, why do you see uh uh, Rupert Pupkin. Um, you did, and the way the way that you phrased the character, I didn't know really what to expect, and I, I love this movie. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. I think it's one that uh, is like really underseen. So hopefully, uh, mm-hmm. it'll turn some people on if they if they haven't seen it and hear this episode. We'll round things out with our Murray moments, um, but before we get into our first clip from Taxi Driver, Lindsay. Can you give me your own interpretation of what you think this movie's about? I sure can, Justin. Well, taking place completely from one person's experience, we follow Travis Bickle, an honorably discharged Vietnam vet who's seemingly lost. He can't sleep, he's sickened by the world around him, yet is entirely consumed by it. Figuring he can make money in amongst the self-described filth all around him in New York, Bickle becomes a cabbie and narrates his voyeuristic observations from the safety inside his cab through his diary entries. As his detachment from reality grows, he fixates on an out-of-his-league woman whom he idealizes, as well as a young prostitute whom he desperately wants to save from her surroundings. His increasing frustration and delusions only continue to dive down further with crippling self-imposed loneliness and a desire to act out stirring in his soul. No doubt Travis Bickle is headed down a very dark path. I like that. More introspective summary than a Vietnam vet goes nuts on New York. He gets a job as a cabbie, kind of, you're like, is this guy going crazy? What's going on with this guy? Why is he like kind of a stalker? But then he's really nice. I don't get this guy. Why Why was Alka-Seltzer so much bigger in 1976? <laughs> the big takeaway. All right, let's go to our first clip from Taxi Driver and we'll be back and then uh, we'll talk about it. Alrighty. You talking to me? <laughs> I don't see anybody else here. You must be talking to me. Who the are you talking to? <laughs> Hold on. Here we go. 12 hours of work and I still can't sleep. Damn. Days go on and on. And they don't end. All my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. I believe that someone should become a person like other people. I first saw her at Palantine Campaign Headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel. Out of this filthy mass. She is alone. They cannot touch So if there was ever a movie that we've done on this podcast that I think starts with the mind of the writer, this is it. 
from the mind of Paul Schrader. Not only was this script a very personal film for him, even though it attracted the attention of Scorsese, Scorsese wasn't Scorsese when he first read Taxi Driver, and a lot of what comes across on screen is uh, influentially written into the script of Taxi Driver. Paul Schrader already had an idea of how, you know, some of this stuff should be portrayed and and, uh, shot. And, you know, Paul Schrader himself has gone on to become, uh, you know, a filmmaker in his own right. He's made like 20-something movies, wrote and directed all of his films just about, but started out as a writer, really only wrote three movies and then started directing with uh, actually a pick of the week that I did way back when, Blue Collar. He was not quite the success that he became right before he wrote Taxi Driver. He was actually in the worst shape of his life. And (laughs) out of that misery came this sort of like golden script, uh, which is just kind of wild that, you know, you can be in your lowest point. And, you know, I I think a lot of people who like make music or write or do anything can relate to that, um, that sometimes in your lowest point, your creative mind will start to go in directions it's never gone before. It's like you're you're not looking for inspiration. It just kind of hits you um, because you're in such despair or you're, you know, your mind is all over the place. Schrader describes the the process of, of Taxi Driver kind of like coming out of almost like nowhere that he wrote it in 10 days and the worst shape of his life. And for a guy too who was a film critic, he came at movies from a more intellectual point of view. He didn't grow up watching movies. He had a very strict upbringing, had no real emotional connection to films. So he was writing this from a very introspective point just because of the human he was at the time and also going through a really rough time in life. He was getting a divorce. I think he was also had a girlfriend that he was breaking up with at the same time, battling insomnia, going to porn theaters because they're open all night and you've got insomnia, as we see Travis Bickle do in Taxi Driver, living in his car just in bad shape, drinking all the time, and eventually landed himself in the hospital with a stomach ulcer. It was at that point, after all of this, that he realized he hadn't spoken to anyone in weeks, multiple weeks. From this, started thinking about his own isolation. Was it isolation that the factors in his life had imposed upon him, or was he doing it to himself? So almost as a form of therapy to exercise his demons, this resentment and kind of loathing towards himself, towards the world around him, he wrote Taxi Driver to get out everything instead of acting out everything. So apparently in just 10 days, he cranked out two drafts of this script, and for the most part, is, is what we see. We'll get into talking about the script a little bit more. I think that the script was much more volatile from what I've read than, than what we see on the screen. And all of that had to do with the introduction of Martin Scorsese and the two producers involved, Michael and Julia Phillips. But before those guys got involved, around the summer of 72, Schrader gave the script to his friend, director Brian De Palma. And De Palma liked it, definitely thought there was something behind it, but didn't think that he was the person to bring this story to the screen. And this is where Martin Scorsese comes into play. And Scorsese, who was friends with De Palma, met Paul Schrader, and Scorsese was immediately drawn to the Taxi Driver script. He loved it. He wanted to direct it. And Michael and Julia Phillips were already attached as would-be producers once the movie 
got a green light. At this point, Scorsese really hadn't made a name for himself yet. This was pre-Mean Streets. He had done basically a, a feature-length student film with Who's That Knocking at My Door with a debut performance of Harvey Keitel. And then he did a Roger Corman bootlegging picture called Boxcar Bertha that really didn't you know, pick up any momentum for Scorsese. And so when he first approached uh, Julian Michael Phillips, he was very enthusiastic and they saw his enthusiasm, but they were like, "Uh, you know, what have you done? Like, come back when you've made another movie and you have some something else under your belt that can convince us that you are the right person for this movie. Scorsese heeded that advice. He made a very personal film in Mean Streets uh, in his neighborhood that felt very real and very New York. It was our first introduction with the De Niro and Scorsese team up. Uh, the movie also was, had a starring role with Harvey Keitel, who Scorsese continued to use and used him in Taxi Driver as well. Now, at this point, Schrader had already sold a script that got produced by a studio, The Yakuza, which was not a successful movie, but had a lot of prestige. It was a big studio picture, uh, starred Robert Mitchum, directed by Sidney Pollack. So he was already a writer that people were talking about. The Taxi Driver script was like, some people were disgusted by it, but a lot of people were excited by it. Paul Schrader told Michael and Julia Phillips, like, hey, Scorsese's got a rough cut of Mean Streets. Like, let's go check it out. And they said they were about halfway through the movie where they made the decision that Scorsese needs to be the director of Taxi Driver and that Robert De Niro needs to play the lead character of Travis Bickle. It all kind of like came together pretty quickly. Like once things lined up, um, De Niro was like very enthusiastic about playing Travis Bickle. At this point, too, in his career, he had just won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two. He was becoming this well-known, established actor. Even though all these things were aligning, it was still this very low-budget picture. I mean, I think the budget was like under $2 million, um, which is low-budget for you know a studio picture at that time. Like the Yakuza movie that Paul Schrader wrote before this, that's not a movie that most people, I think, have heard of. I certainly hadn't heard of it And that movie was like a $5 million studio production. So Taxi Driver was like very nitty gritty made, but they were able to have like all this talent attached before everybody's career just kind of like exploded. And, you know, that that kind of thing just wouldn't have been affordable two years after the making of this film. And we also can't forget that in 74, during all of this taxi driver kind of getting sorted out and Scorsese was, is this going to happen? Is it not? He made Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which was the introduction of Jodie Foster into his life as well, who, of course, would later be a supporting actor in Taxi Driver. And in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore was also Scorsese's first real experience of working with a studio, like it was a studio-funded movie and showed that, you know, he had like a wider range. He could do like a broader movie, even though Taxi Driver is such the opposite of Alice doesn't live here anymore. Scorsese himself has said in many, many interviews, Taxi Driver was one of those movies that he felt like he had to make. He wasn't concerned with it being this like financially successful movie. And I think that was the same thing with De Niro and Michael and Julia Phillips, they didn't see this as being like some big, broad, huge movie. They just thought that it was going to be like a really great film and kind of like looked past a lot of the parts of the script that, you know, a lot of people were saying like, yeah, this is going to turn a lot of people off. Like, who's going to want to go see this movie? Michael and Julia Phillips at this point had won 
an Oscar for Best Picture. They produced The Sting, which was like a massive gargantuan hit. They had a lot of clout coming into producing Taxi Driver. So I think with you know the clout that they had with the studio and their confidence in Scorsese and De Niro having just come off of like a big movie the movie was greenlit and they started going into production this like we said was very low budget movie it was shot on location in new york a very you know kind of like run and gun style there's a lot of creative camera work and a lot of interesting staged pieces in this movie but also a lot of it that seems very loose and somewhat of a documentary style One thing I loved learning was that this was filmed during a trash strike in New York City. So that just added to the grit and grime and disgustingness that Travis Bickle is talking about all this filth that he sees around him and that it's one of the hottest summers too. just not that the heat really transfers in Taxi Driver, but it certainly plays a role in how everything looks. If anything, it kind of just looks wet a lot of times in this film. It's a very interesting contrast because at nighttime, all the colors kind of bleed together, you know, and the thing that stands out is this yellow taxi cab, which is interesting because that's something such of that time period, you know, like the the yellow checkered cab was like so distinct, but all the colors kind of bleed in mixed with the rain and the dinginess contrasts that with all the daytime stuff and these like very elegant shots. And even the scene like when Betsy and Travis are outside the porno theater on their date, that's a gorgeous shot. Cinematography by Michael Chapman, who had uh, been a longtime uh, assistant to Gordon Willis, who shot the Godfather movies. This was him kind of coming into his own in developing, you know, the tools and his style and then working closely with Scorsese to get this very unique look that's like very voyeuristic, holding on shots of Travis uh, when he's in his apartment. And even when Travis is interacting with people, a lot of times the camera's like not close up on him. We're like a little bit further away. It's almost as if we're like eavesdropping into his life. And I love this sort of like fly on the wall, kind of like we're just lingering there watching Travis as he descends into the madness of the city and his own uh, paranoia and his own self-hatred. The voyeurism aspect, I love that in movies. It's a sick part of me, I think. But with Taxi Driver, yeah, it's like we're watching it all happen to Travis, but we're also like we are Travis Bickle. We're supposed to be experiencing everything from his point of view. And we'll talk a little bit later about some interpretations of this film, but how we see everything is how he's experiencing it. There's only, what, one scene that had to be semi-corrected because it looked like it wasn't something that was from Travis's point of view. But really, if you watch the film, it's something I think you can miss because you just, you are him, you know? Like, you're following his journey, his experiences. And in some ways, you're being manipulated into empathizing with Travis and being eased into his loneliness and pain that's perceived, even though he's not, you know, outwardly saying I'm in pain or something like that. But he is a very, very lonely person. I mean, this is like the biggest thing throughout the film. He's also a massive contradiction. And you see what he's saying, what he's viewing about the world. And then without him saying anything, you're you're watching what he's actually doing, which is in complete contrast to what he's saying that he hates about everything around him. He he hates the degradation and just disgusting 
everything around him, yet he's going to porno theaters. He's putting peach brandy in his cereal. He's eating Doritos and drinking Coke all day. There are just so many things about this film that you don't really realize that are happening to you as a viewer that you are fully functioning as Travis, but if you pay close attention, it's a double whammy in a lot of ways that this film is trying to show you how damaged and traumatized this person is. Presumably, I mean, we can maybe extrapolate that and think that it's from Vietnam, but we're also seeing how that is playing out in his everyday life. What you're saying about uh, his contradictions, it's like a lot of times, you know, you'll hear someone say like, oh, it's, you know, this... It, this you have to look at this movie. It's a character study, you know, which usually is I interpret as it's a very boring movie, but that's the point of it. it's not supposed to be exciting. It's supposed to be <laughs> like we're really gonna get into this character, and you know we're gonna yeah. show like the ins and outs of his life. What's funny is is like I think that there's the, the this movie is a distinct character study, but it's also you know the tension is ramped up. It's exciting, you know, it has. Uh, a plot that has like a beginning middle and end but a lot of the themes of like the contradiction and in the the self-hatred of the character I think the biggest thing to me I think can be relatable to an audience is the main theme of this movie is like self-control you know we all every day are battling some sense of self-control you know you're trying not to drink too much coffee or you're trying to exercise more you're not trying not to smoke cigarettes you're trying not to drink caffeine you're trying not to eat junk food. You don't want to drink too much. You're trying to get more sleep. Um, all these things that we seemingly can get out of our control at any given moment. And one little thing can lead to another and it can become a domino effect. And I think that's what's scary about this movie because seemingly anybody can be a well-adjusted human being, but you know, when those dominoes start falling of self-control and we start giving in to indulgence or not uh, worrying about consequence, it's like we could start entering down the path of Travis Bickle. And maybe not to the extreme of like, we're going to try to assassinate somebody, but you can actually go down a self-destructive path for a pretty long time before your before your brain will actually admit it to yourself. Not to turn this into a therapy session, but I think this movie really, really does a great job of showing how we have that struggle and how not talking to anybody about it, about self-isolation and, and cutting yourself off from the world and from human contact and like just going through the motions you can start to justify yourself giving in to these urges that, you know, maybe some of them are addictions, maybe some of them are bad habits, whatever label you want to put on it to make yourself feel comfortable. Everybody's battling something. That's what this movie to me it is about. And that's what to me makes it so identifiable and so relatable is that Travis Bickle is in essence, anybody can start out seemingly calm and normal in well adjusted and can can slip away you know because there's so many things that you know that we're trying to skirt around and i like that this movie takes its time it it sets that up and it places it throughout the movie you know we see him more and more you know again with the contradictions he's working 12 hour shifts at a job that he actually despises not only that he hates working at night but he chooses the night shift and then he's making good money i mean he even says at one point he tells jody foster i'll give you my money what am i going to do with it granted he's already made a decision that he's going to commit a crime and potentially kill himself but 
the point being is that he's saving all this money and he doesn't ever find his own solutions to help himself. He decides to do it in one explosive action. You know, he doesn't take little steps to say, well, maybe I'll save my money and then I'll reduce myself to part time and pick up a hobby or whatever. These things that it's easy to look at a movie and look at a, a person, you know, if you work with somebody like Travis Bickle, look at that person and say, well, hey man, why didn't they just do this? Why did they do this? But it's easy. It's easier said than done. And I think just again, going back to Paul Schrader, you know, this guy, Paul Schrader is a huge Hollywood success, but at, at this point in time, when you wrote Taxi Driver, you know, he was considering suicide and felt like he was like a ghost walking around in the city where, all this activity is happening. That's why I think that it's it's unique to this idea of like a taxi cab driver. Um, to me, I don't think of a taxi driver as someone who is so isolated, but maybe that's the point, you know, because he is talking to people every day, but he can't relate to anyone. And the more he talks to people, the more he despises people. And the more he has like all this pent up aggression, you know, that he doesn't have any real friends, you know, even the guy that uh wizard who who's sort of like the the senior cab driver there travis tries to express himself and you know there's all this sort of like masculinity small talk where they you know he just can't express his feelings and wizard played by peter boyle is just like yeah you'll be fine i've seen a lot of guys and you know you're, you're gonna be all right kid you know and just this sort of like writes it off as like yeah, you know, you're just you're just feeling a little down. We all feel down. Travis never really gets to get that out. But then again, and this is again, this is like the early 70s, like it probably wasn't easy for him to go seek out a mental health physician and probably nobody that said uh, you, you obviously need therapy. You know, what I mean, and they have drugs that they can get you on or they can help you out like that just wasn't available to him. And I think a lot of that still translates today, you know, when you're in your early 20s. Um, and you're, you know, dealing with stressors, you've, you've left the comfort of, of your home or, or your parents or like any sort of like structured lifestyle after high school, you know, all this responsibility and what's going to happen with your life or what, what does it mean? What do you mean? Do you, what do you count in this world? Um, all that can come kind of, kind of crashing down on you if you don't have any sort of structure or self-discipline. And even though Travis is coming out of the Marines, it's evident that that only, uh, hurt him more than it helped him, at least the way Paul Schrader portrays his character in the movie. And in 1975-76, PTSD wasn't something that was being talked about. That wouldn't be talked about for another five years or so. And in essence, we're seeing a story about the soul of a man in pain and doesn't know how to articulate himself. And at the same time, we're seeing the world through how a psychotic experiences everything around him. And I think like what you said about Peter Boyle, him trying to, I don't know, help Travis in some way. Travis has enough wherewithal to be like, you're full of crap that what you're saying, like has no substance or value to me whatsoever. And wizard is like, yeah, if you're totally right, I don't know what I'm talking about. Now pairing that scene with when Travis is interacting with one of his only fares that we see, who's played by Martin Scorsese, who's in the back seat. He's driving him to sit outside this apartment where Scorsese's character says, you see that woman up in the window right there? That's my wife, but that's not my apartment. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill her. And this is how I'm going to do it and explains it in a very graphic, disturbing way. But how he is expressing himself, how he is getting out his feelings, how he's able to articulate. And even though it is graphic 
and awful to hear. The person who's scary in that situation is Travis, because that's when we see an example of a man in pain who's able to articulate it. He's not going to kill his wife. I mean, that's my interpretation. He's he's not going to kill his wife. He's not going to kill the man that she's having an affair with, but he's upset and he doesn't know what to do with it. Travis is someone who is internalizing all of his anger, everything that he feels is wrong with the world and doesn't know how to express it. And he reaches out to Wizard at one point, but gets no help. And he's not the brightest guy either. He's not dumb, but he's just, he's not cultured. He's not, he, he just doesn't have a lot of access or a lot of knowledge that that there is help out there. Or even just a lot of friends, you know? Like, the guy doesn't have a support system. And so we see him, when we see him in the world, he is taking everything in and internalizing it and not really able to do anything with the rage and anger that he feels. And the only time that we really see who Travis is in his safe space, the only place where he is himself is either in his cab, his apartment, or in a porn theater. And those three places are kind of, to me, where he's the most disturbing because it's the silent understanding, even if there is narration, we know what is going on in Travis's head, but no one else around him knows what a ticking time bomb the guy is. It's like just kind of watching like an awkward first date, you know, which even leads into their second date, which is even more awkward. That's where you sort of see the the darker side of like this guy's clearly like obsessed with pornography so much that he's like, yeah, I'm going to take this woman I just met on our second date to like a porn movie and it just like totally backfires in his face he it's just such a part of his life he doesn't realize like oh yeah not everybody's going to like be as excited about the fact that like you're you're about to take me to like a porn movie but that plays into him as a contradiction because he is being self-destructive i i there's no way that i think travis is dumb enough to think that Betsy is interested in seeing porn. If anything, it's like he wants her to either be taken down to his level and test those boundaries or, and this is just my interpretation, to either testing boundaries or he knows he's not good enough for her and wants her to run. Now that's more of like a subconscious thing. Man, there's the other side of the coin that Travis doesn't really know too much outside of his bubble. Like I said before, he's not cultured. He doesn't know much about politics. He'll readily admit that. He doesn't know about music. So there's part of me that does think that he doesn't know anything outside of going to a porn theater. Like he says, oh yeah, all kinds of couples come here. And In his minor defense, the porn that they're showing in there is like an educational weird porn. I don't really know what was going on, but it wasn't like a straight up, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, You know, I I think that the way the movie views our interpretation, Travis, is that she's this goddess. Even when they show her walking in and her hair's blowing and it's like in slow motion, he views her as this magnificent being that he's somehow able to control, but like his ignorance backfired on him. I I think at that point he doesn't, you know, his confidence isn't shook 
But then once his confidence gets shook, which I think also plays into the male ego. I don't know that this is something intentional that Schrader does because I think Schrader's got an enormous ego. It's the male ego that's damaged time and time again in sickening amount of of men who have killed women simply because they rejected them or like, I don't want to date you anymore. I don't agree with you and I don't like you. And then instead of them accepting it, because of their bruised ego, they lash out with violence. That's the truth. Bickle is like that example of someone, even the way he's like grabbing her and like, you know, she's like, let go of me. And he's like not allowing her to leave because he doesn't feel like he's getting a say in. And then immediately, what is it? It's she is the worst human. She's just like the rest of them. And then he turns into a freaking stalker. Yeah, that that's like the turn, you know, and that's one really brilliant thing about this movie is there are so many little bits of where we see Travis taking one step down further, one further, and we just see him losing himself. And along with the misogynistic aspect of this film is is something else that we see that happens a little bit more frequent as the film progresses on. And there are hints of it all throughout. And in the original script, it was certainly much more at the forefront. I mean, it, it should be said that there is maybe not overt, but Travis is certainly a, a racist. And one could say that if a person doesn't have the highest self-esteem or thinks that they are, are, are lower than someone else, that they're going to pick on the person who's lower than them, who who they can hold down, who they can oppress, who they can look at as a villain because they need a target because they're off for, for one of a better phrase. But um, it, it definitely should be said that Travis needs somebody to hate. He's got a lot of anger in his heart and these nuggets of hinted at racism. I'm glad it's not more overt because I think it would be a lot more to take than it already is. The movie would play totally different. In the original script, at the end of the movie, Travis kills all black people. And I think it was a good decision to change the pimp character that Harvey Keitel plays from a black character to a white character. And do you think that that was something that Schrader just was like, well, all these guys in here are black? Schrader claims that as far as like New York and pimps go, racially, he said that's what he was writing. He was writing what he knew of the truth of New York. And um, they claim that when Harvey Keitel was trying to find a pimp, he claims that he searched up and down and he couldn't find a white pimp anywhere. But, you know, the producers and everybody said, you know, like, if you have him gunned down all these black people after... And he made the Travis Bickle character, he was much more an obvious racist in the original script. You're going to lose everybody. Just going to be such a hateful tone that, you know, no one's going to be able to, it's not going to sit well. And yeah, I mean, I think if that was the ending in this movie, I mean, it, I don't think that it would have been successful. And I also think that it would be a movie that just like despised. Because you, you do have to have sympathy for Travis. You do have to feel, maybe you don't feel everything that Travis feels, but you certainly have at one point in life felt the frustration that he does. And I think that if you're going to introduce something like this guy is a racist and he uses a lot of terminology that's not cool, there's no way you're going to ever feel sympathy for that guy, even if you do get him on some level. The racism is still there in the script, but even in Travis's racism, you see his contradiction, you know, like other cab drivers, you know, say they won't take black people 
Um, they won't pick up black passengers. They won't drive to Harlem. And he says, even in his narration, doesn't make a difference. And even the other cab drivers kind of like call him out on that. They're like, man, you go to some like rough spots. And he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, he doesn't distinguish his hatred in those ways, you know, but when he's alone and he's like, again, like you said, trying to find someone like a target, though yeah. his first initial target is the white, rich political guy running for president it just so happens that that you know he wasn't able to to do that successfully so he then goes and takes it out on who he believes are the low lives of the city just one final thing uh, like at least with themes and stuff with the script i know we're kind of going longer here on this but there is so like we said so many things are layered into this movie i think there's a lot of things in this movie that schrader wasn't trying to say that just sort of like came out almost like accidentally because things that weren't like super i think relevant then but now are just so Uh, relevant that this movie hits on and i think one of it is the fascination with guns travis starts out as a guy who doesn't think about guns doesn't own a gun even when a cab driver's like hey you know do you have a piece he's like no no you know i mean just they're not even though this is a guy who was a military guy and was comfortable with guns doesn't own a gun he's not about guns and then as soon as he kind of starts going down this path we have this whole like romanticism with guns and he's like looking at all these guns and he's holding it and the rest of the movie, you know, he's building contraptions for his guns and he's posing with his guns. And it almost to me, like starts showing that side of like the, the fetishism with guns in America. I don't know that that's something that Schrader was like going for also to this idea of as soon as he buys those guns within like the first week, he like, shoots and kills a guy in the convenience store taxi driver does like a very this like prophetic movie about um you know young males and their fascination with like guns in america so prophetic in a lot of ways since we're on the topic of guns in american culture where like that becomes the outlet like i'm gonna use these guns to assassinate somebody or or shoot a bunch of people and since his movies come out just an enormous amount of of shootings it's you know, too many to even think about or count. But before Taxi Driver came out, there was only a few handful of mass shootings. But Arthur Bremer, who Paul Schrader claims he was aware of, he was aware of Arthur Bremer, who tried to assassinate uh, political candidate George Wallace. After a failed attempt of trying to kill Nixon. Yeah, after a failed attempt of trying to kill <laughs> Nixon, who also wrote diary, who also wrote a diary about um, that he that was initially released after he you know went to prison. In his diary, kind of like has the same sort of cadence and style of talking that Travis Bickle does. Um, also, you know, was obsessed with pornography. Also uh, befriended um, a girl who was like 15 while he was a janitor at high school and ultimately got fired because he decided to take that girl to his house and show her pornography. So many things, so many parallel things of Arthur Bremer's life. Paul Schrader said to this day that he never read those diaries before he wrote Taxi Driver. He claims to have been, you know, I knew of Arthur Bremer, but he didn't solely base the Travis Bickle character on Arthur Bremer. I just find it extremely hard to believe because there's just too many parallels. And Paul Schrader kind of almost like a, he like almost does like a Travis Bickle humble brag in saying, <laughs> yeah, you know, when I did read the diaries after I had already written Taxi Driver, I was kind of proud of myself, you know, like, wow, they are so similar. 
I don't know. And I find it, the reason why I find it so hard to believe is I was really kind of like obsessed with Taxi Driver when I was younger. And it wasn't, an, I mean, and granted that was back pre-Google and all this stuff, but I just found that I never really read much about that in interviews until like I actually found, a, you know, was reading a Making a Taxi Driver book um, recently and that sort of came out. And even then Schrader kind of dodges the question. He dodges it in other views when people straight out ask him. So I don't know if maybe Paul Schrader really just is that prophetic and just could get into the mind of, of somebody that uh, he's never met. And he is a script writer and he came up with a lot of interesting ideas and original takes. That's the only thing that hasn't sat well with me in the research that we've been doing for this episode. I was curious what you thought of disclosing that he did not read the um, Assassination Diaries by Arthur or Bremer before writing the taxi driver script. I clearly don't sound like I have an issue with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, after I did a little bit of digging on this, I mean, from what you told me and then also finding out that he was caught kind of spying from afar and in, in a car on one of the campaign rallies, he's photographed at a rally uh, and we see like a, a photograph incident happen with Travis Bickle, Arthur Bremer even offered to be a campaign volunteer and even showing up to, this was after Nixon, this was when he was stalking Wallace. He's at a campaign rally in sunglasses, campaign button, and aside from not having the mohawk, it, it's not a military jacket, but he's certainly in a jacket with a collar. It just looks eerily identical. <laughs> And, you know, and he uh, checked into a hotel under the AK uh, Gavish Schmickle, which I thought was also kind of, no, that didn't happen, but. Okay, I was about ready to be like, <laughs> are you fucking serious? <laughs> you may as well have. <laughs> After reading a lot of these, it's just, it's it's hard to not see the, the parallels. And I mean, and sometimes coincidences are, are, are just that, you know, it just seems a little hard to believe that it happened right at the same time. Don't get me wrong. I, I think I like, there's a lot of Paul Schrader movies I like, but his two strongest scripts, right, are Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, both of which Raging Bull is heavily, I mean, 100% based on a real guy who was there that could give them the stories, you know, he wrote a book. That script in Taxi Driver is two best scripts, yet he's saying Taxi Driver wasn't based solely on one person. I just find it hard to believe because then his other movies in which, you know, he's not basing them on a particular character 100% aren't, have not been as as well constructed and in, in, in depth as Taxi Driver and Reggie Bull. So I don't know. Or maybe it was just that, you know, early script gusto young person getting everything out. And But anyway, I won't dwell on it, but look it up for yourself. You be the judge. Hit us up with a, you know, message on social media. Let us know what you think. If you think we're full of shit and you're 100% <laughs> Team Schrader, tell us about it. Schrader's a mean old man now. He'll attack us on Facebook probably. He'll be like, you guys are full of shit. Oh, yeah. He is not afraid of confrontation. Yeah. But, uh, wow, this is a long first discussion. We went in places I didn't necessarily know that we would go, which is great. So let's uh, go to another clip from Taxi Driver. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast. We'll talk about the music. We'll talk about um, the uh, release of this film and the uh, reception. Why do you want me to go back to my parents? I mean, they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. 
Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. A girl should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? What do you mean, women's lib? You're a young girl. You should be at home now. You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. You're full of shit, man. What are you talking about? You, you walk out with those fucking creeps and lowlifes and degenerates out on the street and you sell your, sell your little pussy for nothing, man? For some lowlife pimp? Stands in a hall? I'm the, I'm square? You're the one that's square, man. I don't go screw and fuck with a bunch of killers and junkies the way you do. You call that being hip? What world are you from? Who's a killer? That guy Sport's a killer. That's who's a killer. Sport never killed him. He killed He's someone. He's a Libra. He's a what? I'm a Libra, too. That's why we get along so well. He looks like a killer to me. I think that that cancers make the best lovers, but God, my whole family are air signs. He's also a dope shooter. So what makes you so high and mighty? Will you tell me that? Didn't you ever try looking in your own eyeballs in the mirror? Well, since discussion one ran pretty long, we'll try to be brief with the cast. To me, I know a lot of times when we discuss the cast, there's not so many individualized behind-the-scenes stories of the roles that these actors done. And it seems like with Taxi Driver, like everybody, it's a pretty unique story. Starting with De Niro, you know, in the 70s, De Niro was the kind of like the king of continuing the method acting technique where you just like become the character and you know even when the cameras aren't rolling you kind of like try to stay in the character through the entire shoot whether or not it angers or annoys your other cast and crew members by the time de niro did taxi driver the guy had won an academy award but he was still full-on method acting like he went out got a cab driver's license depending on who you read an interview with who he either drove a cab for two days or up to like a month but very committed to the role and like wanted to get the feel of what a cab driver would do and how he would operate and talk to different customers. I think it really worked great, especially for the fact that Michael Chapman, the cinematographer, and Scorsese wanted the driving scenes to look very authentic and wanted it to look like De Niro was driving. So they actually crouched down in the cab and attached the camera, you know, from the trunk at times. Normally, for the safety of an actor and the ease of shooting, you would have like the car towed while you're shooting it so that way the driver could or the actor wouldn't actually have to drive. But yeah, when you're watching Taxi Driver, De Niro does uh, 100% of the driving. And a lot of times, Michael Chapman said, you know, he was, they had a few lights rigged or they would use available lights um, just, you know, from New York City, the lights from outside or the neons that were outside to give it that sort of dreamy nighttime quality. I don't know. I think that's like pretty incredible because it really is, when you watch the movie, you really do feel like you're in the cab with Travis. And I think it adds to the realism and the voyeurism to Taxi Driver. And De Niro, he's done so many good performances, great performances that's hard to single one out. But I do think that Taxi Driver is like, to me, I like it more than his portrayal of the young Vito Corleone in 
godfather too i think taxi driver is like and even more than johnny boy and mean streets made him that actor of his generation what he does with travis pickle is just magical i think being able to bring such care and sympathy to this person who has a lot of qualities that are not admirable and being able to play so many different versions of the same character. It just, it's what keeps him interesting. I don't know. I don't know how the guy can be captivating for two hours. Like you were pretty much all on Travis Bickle the entire time. And there's not one moment where I want to look away from him. Even at his worst, we see him in intimate moments, just him by himself and somehow De Niro reflects those moments that everyone has when they're alone looking in the mirror acting out a situation or they're by themselves just being their true essence of who they are that no one else sees that if I mean if someone would have come in Travis's apartment in the legendary you talking to me scene and seen him doing that he would have been embarrassed and we get to glimpse this truth of Travis and man, De Niro just nails it on home. I love the dude in this. His ability to go from a scared, kind of slightly innocent boy to this Avenger in some ways with weird morals that make sense but don't quite. It's fabulous writing for a complex character, but not everyone would be able to pull off this role. Finally, one thing, too, that De Niro does is the voice acting that he does for the narration. And Scorsese has used narration in in numerous movies, but this was one of his first movies where it's not wall-to-wall narration, but we are, you know, we're, we're getting Travis Bickle reading from his journal. Like, these are his thoughts. And those have to be a little bit differently portrayed than how we see him interacting with individuals. Narration can be really difficult. You know, it can really kind of, in some ways, like ruin a movie if it's done badly. I'm not bagging on Harrison Ford and Blade Runner, but like comparatively, you can really see the difference in, you know, an actor like going all in on, hey, we, we got to record this narration and it's important to the to the role and, and giving that as much care and and time as, as he did in the physical performance. And I think going in order of appearance, maybe of, of this film would be best because this movie moves in sections. So the next person for me that stands out is Sybil Shepard. I've always been a fan of Sybil Shepard. I think that she's a fabulous actor and also think it's hilarious that when it came time to cast the role of Betsy, Scorsese said, we want a Sybil Shepard type. And I guess contacted someone at, I don't think it was directly her agent, but, or someone at her agency that said, well, what about Sybil Shepard instead of just a Sybil Shepard type? Initially, Sybil was excited at the idea, but then read the part and thought it was just completely worthless and just nothing and just had nothing really to offer. What she brought, though, was so much strength to this role than what was initially offered to her. And I think that had a lot to do with she and De Niro working their scenes together. And this is something that Scorsese is known for doing, which is letting actors do a lot of ad-libbing and figuring out their scenes and rehashing everything along with working in the scripted dialogue and then siphoning out what works and what doesn't. And then he takes home the ad-lib, the script, and then basically does kind of a rewrite of sorts of what people are going to say. And I think that that added so much to Sybil's character, even though she was the object of obsession, she was 
put on this pedestal by Travis. She is so much more than what is presented for that. And I, I think it's just a wonderful attribute to the film and definitely a feather in her cap for her entire career. When we were researching this episode, I found evidence that seemed like there was like bad blood amongst Sybil Shepard and De Niro and that, you know, like he didn't feel like she was um, acting up to par. It seems like in recent interviews that people just all that's kind of like water under the bridge. They don't really get into it. I don't know. It's kind of crazy to me because to me, I, I, at least like what I always feel like when I watch a movie is if someone makes a huge lasting impression and they have like very little screen time, the mark of like a, a great performance. And Civil Shepherd is really, I mean, aside from like the very end and a, a little moment toward the third act, she's really only in the opening and their first date together. And then she kind of disappears for a while, but she remains like with you for the entire movie because she does offer us like this glimpse into the first part of like Travis before he descends into his madness, him like trying to adapt in society in this office interplay between her and Albert Brooks. They had really great chemistry. And then also you see her totally flip and, you know, she's excited. They're on a date and she's happy. And then like post porn theater scene, you know, you see her sort of like repulsed by Travis and like, you know, I just want to get out of here and the anger. And I don't know, all that feels like to me, like really, really authentic. And it feels like you're actually out on this date with them and all her response, you know, her reactions to Travis. I really think she's great in this movie and kind of like elevates it. She does give off the appearance of somebody that you would think like, oh, look at this classy lady, you know, who's like smart and she has like a career is like goal oriented, but yet, you know, is willing to have uh, coffee with this strange man who like asked her out in the middle of her work shift after her since just order of appearance i think casting albert brooks as her counterpart at the presidential campaign office was just a brilliant move now this guy this character had no lines initially very boring underdeveloped Schrader even said, I don't even know what to do with this guy. He's just like there as someone to exist, you know. But Albert Brooks was the one who fleshed out this character. In essence, is the reason that that character has lines. I think it was Paul Schrader that said it was just a brilliant move for Scorsese to cast him, even though Schrader was apprehensive initially. But you cast a comic in a nothing role, and you're going to come out with something that's completely worthwhile and uh i hate to say this because it makes it sound like i'm like bagging on a lot of people in this episode i don't know why but oh yeah just keep bagging i'll just hashtag all of them justin don't worry <laughs> but in, in an interview with albert brooks for taxi driver he said he can be way funnier than his character is in this movie but you know he chose to not play it as funny and i think this is like his best character when he's like not playing it funny this and his character and out of sight are my two favorite roles of his yeah i think he does like a fantastic job and again yeah for a character that essentially was just the writer didn't know what to do with he just he's just like this random co-worker that she works with um albert brooks was able to develop the character and have like this really great chemistry and like sort of like back and forth with Sybil Shepard to kind of really set the scene for this whole campaign office kind of brings us in because Travis if we only followed him in there and saw it for a second it really wouldn't give us an idea of like connecting 
um, the Palantine character to the whole movie. And we need a, another male character around Sybil because we have to also show that Travis is trying to isolate Betsy uh, from any other male that's around her. Like he, on their first date, says, what do you think about this guy you work with? You like him? I don't really like him. He doesn't know anything about him, but he wants to let her know that he doesn't like Albert Brooks's character and it thinks that she needs to stay away from him. Like, we need that to establish that Travis is controlling. He is already trying to manipulate her in this oddly subtle kind of, like, it's not passive, but it's, like, he, he's trying to just say, I know better than you, what he's been doing the entire time. We need Albert Brooks. If not for that, we also need him for the little bits of comedy where he's like eavesdropping on the initial conversation between Travis and Betsy. Rewatch that scene. If you are unfamiliar, rewatch that because it is absolutely hilarious to watch Albert Brooks in the background. And uh, maybe one, one of these days I'll get Albert Brooks humor, but watch broadcast news. I keep telling you that watch broadcast news. I'll watch broadcast news. I promise. <laughs> So the most uh, controversial casting for this movie, clearly Jodie Foster is the 12 and a half year old prostitute Iris. Who was 12 and a half years old when she was in this film. Yeah. Her sister, who was 17, did some of the body double stuff. Kind of interesting because in all these interviews, they're saying like, oh, yeah, like we were all worried about having this character in there and having like a, an actor that age play the role. And, you know, they're like, we're going to send Jodie Foster to a child psychologist, you know, to make sure she's like mentally prepared to play this role. You know, they really didn't need to make her 12 and a half years old. I mean, this is Paul Schrader. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, it's sort of like an unforgivable act. It just seemed unnecessary. It makes a hell of an impact, though, you know? It makes a hell of an impact. It does. Um, but today it's amongst the hardest things to watch in this movie. Jodie Foster is so fantastic in it. I mean, the scene where she, her and De Niro are, are having breakfast in the diner and she's kind of just like talking. It's in that scene where you really see her as like, a child to follow that scene up with her and Harvey Keitel. It's like, God, Ugh. her and Harvey Keitel is like the toughest scene for me to watch. Like the post her having lunch with Travis and then her telling Harvey Keitel, the pimp that she knows she doesn't like what she's doing and him kind of trying to smooth talk her back into work for him is uh God, it's pretty difficult to sit through. It could be a lot worse, but it already is skeezy and gross because we see the subtle manipulation of a child. Yeah, juxtapose that with the breakfast that she has with Travis is very jarring, but also effective, you know, very effective. And I also love learning that with De Niro's whole method acting, that he would uh, take Jody out to multiple multiple diners and he, he would sit there with her and wouldn't say anything and she was uncomfortable she thought it was boring and was like why are we even doing this but his idea in doing that was to get her comfortable being around him in a diner surrounding and then once that started happening they started doing lines and started working through that and then occasionally not to throw her off, but he would throw in ad-lib lines and she became more and more comfortable with interacting with him. So that diner scene to me seems effortless. She really does seem like a, a kid who has seen too much 
and is an adult when she's still a child. It's just all of these like very, very telling, nuanced things that two people have to be comfortable in order for that scene to work. She actually got to meet the real version of Iris, the real young prostitute that she was based upon and learned a little bit from her. Didn't really know how to interact with her because, you know, she was a child. And so was this girl, too. But the girl that Iris was based upon actually does appear in the film, too. When when Jody is crossing the street and almost gets hit by Travis, the friend that she has with her is the actual girl who that role was based on. Well, since I've been on a roll for this whole episode, Lindsay, of uh, <laughs> my uh, criticism of so many people that are doing things professionally that I'm not. Yeah. Uh, give me number four. Who's who is it? Who's number four? <laughs> this is something that we were talking about in the introduction. You know, we both um, a lot of people uh, feel like Sybil Shepherd is the weak, weak link in Taxi Driver. And we both really admire her yeah. role in this film. And um, we both agree that the weak link in Taxi Driver, and I stand by this, is, is Harvey Keitel's portrayal of the pimp. Yeah, I was afraid to tell you that I felt that way. This all came about in like these last, I mean, I watched this movie like very closely over the last two weeks and maybe this is gonna be like blasphemous for certain people. I like Harvey Keitel in a lot of movies and I think he's like really fantastic. Yeah. But in this movie, I just feel like he's like overplaying it every step of the way. He said that, you know, he tracked down a real pimp and did role play with the pimp and learned all the the ways that this guy would talk to the girls you know that he has working for him it just never comes off convincing to me and the only times that Harvey Keitel is actually comes off good in this movie is when De Niro is like making him feel awkward and I think more of that's from De Niro just like staring at him and like working the scene and maybe it's the wig too the wig is the only time where the movie like looks low budget the rest of it's kind of like gritty maybe the wig is bothering me more than Kaitel's performance <laughs> and i love Kaitel, man i think there's so many movies so many performances that i love of his but he's my least favorite role in this movie and i agree with you on that and everything that you said i i agree with i don't think that he's terrible by any means yeah yeah i don't think just, he's terrible it's just like the one that that sticks out when compared to to everybody else. And honestly, you know what? It might come down to the wig. I think it is the wig. Harvey Keitel is a wonderful, accomplished actor. Yeah. It just feels weird in this movie. But then uh, but then you look at Stephen Prince, who plays Easy Andy, who's not a professional actor and who's only really Good been Lord. in like a few things who was just a friend of Scorsese and you know just an interesting character that Scorsese knew uh puts him in the role as Easy Andy the gun dealer and just this like <laughs> five minutes that he's on screen is like magical <laughs> you know you already feel like like voyeuristic um yeah. and seeing Travis in his apartment but seeing them like meet up in this hotel room and Easy Andy showing him all these guns and then eventually trying to push like you know all these other drugs on him or like telling him he can you know sell him a brand new Cadillac for $2000 <laughs> just this sort of like hustling skeezy kind of guy um he just it to me it's like he's just like electrifying and and every second that he's on screen I can see why Scorsese like you know, became friends with this guy. He's like, yeah, I have to put you in a movie. I don't know what you're going to play in the movie, but I'm going to put you in the movie and we're going to, we're going to do a scene with you in the movie. If you haven't seen the documentary that Scorsese did on 
this guy. And it's not really like a documentary. It's more Stephen Prince telling all of these crazy life stories that so many people around him know and to the camera and Scorsese's as he's asking questions. Definitely check it out. It's called American Boy, a profile of Stephen Prince. It is worthwhile. I could watch it like five more times and still keep getting information out of it. And if you've never seen it or know about one particular story that Stephen Prince oh, yeah. tells, uh, I think you'll be very, very surprised and fascinated to find out what director used that story directly for a very famous scene in a very famous movie. But we'll keep that uh, secret in case you haven't seen it. Uh, check it out. It's actually on the uh, Criterion channel right now if you have it um it's also included on a uh dvd and blu-ray that uh, criterion put out called scorsese shorts and that documentary is included on there as well as uh, some of his student films and uh, another documentary he made about his family and to probably round out the cast real quickly the great wonderful peter boyle fabulous and everything the man was ever in playing wizard the speech that he gives Travis was pretty much all his idea and just uh, another example of Peter Boyle's brilliance and what he can bring to a character. Again, an actor who does so much with such little screen time. I don't know, in some ways, Peter Boyle is the most sympathetic character because you kind of feel like he gets Travis because he knows how you can get down working the same job over and over again, but he's like succumbed to it. You know, he accepted the fact and saying, you know, we're all fucked, you know, more or less and sort of like you know we just you got to take the punches and kind of continue on when I listened to that I was just like every now and then you know like if I'm having a hard day or like a hard week or like a hard year you know you wish that you could just go outside and get like a pep talk from you know wizard somebody like him this sort of like simple general advice that's what's going to get you through at least to the next day unless you're someone that's really going to go out and start killing people right right in which case uh (laughs) you might need something stronger than that You know, I happen to think there's one last character we need to talk about, and it's throughout the entire film, and that is the city of New York. It plays such a strong role in all of this. The cityscapes alone, the streets, how everyone is just interacting with their surroundings. It is just a constant in the background, and we really need it to complete the atmosphere of Taxi Driver. And You know, what's interesting to me that you bring up the city as as a central character in this movie as well is that not only is it, you know, a, a, a timestamp of New York in the 70s, but this specifically gritty part of New York City. You know, when you think of New York movies, you know, you always think of the general shot of like how big and expansive New York is and these big, beautiful shots. That's not something that you necessarily see in Taxi Driver. It's very closed in. You can tell it's New York and you can tell they're in like a busy city, but it's all these sort of like seedy parts of the city. We see a few building, you know, big buildings like the Campaign Center and stuff like that, but you never see any like sweeping shots of, you know, the New York that you would see in the 80s, which becomes like, yeah, like another character that that Travis is sort of like uh, guiding his way through with us in the backseat of his cab. And also illustrates how cities can sometimes be the loneliest places. That loneliness, this sort of like brooding vibe that's happening, that's building throughout Taxi Driver is set into motion a lot by 
the Bernard Herrmann score. And this was Bernard Herrmann's final score that he did before he passed away. He actually recorded the score for Taxi Driver in two days and passed away the evening of the second day in his hotel room. So crazy. And this is such an interesting score because a lot of his other scores, you know, there's a lot of strings. You know, he does he did uh, quite a few movies for Alfred Hitchcock. But in this particular movie, after it took a little bit of convincing to get him to work on this film. Because he doesn't do movies about cabbies, apparently. Yeah, that's what he told Scorsese. Yeah. <laughs> Sounded like he was a pretty cantankerous old man at this point yeah. in his career. But he said that after you know watching a cut of Taxi Driver, he heard the brass. That's what I love the most about this movie. All these horns coming in over very um, like light, percussive parts but then a saxophone coming in and like kind of drifting into like sort of this jazzy you know almost like romantic music you know but then going back into this sort of like uh like you know you mentioned several times like a horror movie vibe yeah. like almost like a horror horror movie yeah score. it's very alluring and also haunting at the same time these sharp jabs where it really makes you feel the anger and kind of madness that exists, but also this brooding internal struggle that's happening within Travis. And then, yeah, the the romantic theme that is woven in, and sometimes it's directly what we're watching on screen. Sometimes it's relating to that. Sometimes it's not at all. And sometimes it's all mixed together, which just continues to exacerbate this idea of Travis having all of these conflicting emotions going on at once. Also, the uh, the use of his music, them choosing not one that uh, there was a lot of sound effects that they had over uh, an early cut. And Bernard Herman said, you know, you paid me to write this score. And then you're like putting all these like what he called noise over my <laughs> soundtrack. So they cut down a lot of the sound effects that were in the original cut, but also that Bernard Herman, one of his choices not to have music over the whole massacre scene and the music doesn't come in. So they yeah. go to the uh, money shot overhead tracking shot of going over Travis after he's killed everybody. And, and you see the cops sort of standing there like still. And then the music comes in for the rest of that sort of like montage of like the, decimation of everything and it really um i don't know if anyone out there remembers the ending score to sleepaway camp but i can't help but think that someone was really influenced by taxi driver because it is the same kind of assaulting shock that's happening in sleepaway camp like with the music in the same way in taxi driver interesting and going along with that final scene that final scene was problematic for the MPAA because of how bloody and graphic it was. And keep in mind, this is 76. We've seen a lot worse since 76. But at the time, this was too much. And Taxi Driver was initially given an X rating because of all of the blood and just violence that was happening. And Scorsese chose to do something that appeased the MPAA and also, in the end, he ended up thinking it was a massive improvement. And you can see where this begins. And it's as soon as Travis rolls up to the brothel and confronts Sport, Harvey Keitel, you notice the desaturation. Everything is much darker. The tones are taken down. You know exactly what's going on. You can see everything. But everything's a lot 
darker. In a lot of ways, you know what? I think it was an improvement too. I would love to see what it originally looked like, but it adds this ominous feeling to what's about to happen. And the fact that all of the blood and carnage that we see later, that red is taken out and it's this nasty brown color, it makes it just seem even sicker to me. What an interesting way to get around the MPA. And yeah, it does give it sort of a grimier feel. I know uh, Michael Chapman said he wished they had a negative of the original non-desaturated version so that they could have released it, you know, as a special feature much later when DVDs came out and and Laserdisc and Blu-rays, but he said that it had been long destroyed. So this movie was successfully released with an R rating and ended up being the 17th highest grossing film of 1976 and did receive four Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Score, Supporting Actress for Jodie Foster and for Robert De Niro. And even though it did garner a lot of praise to the surprise of Martin Scorsese, who we said in the beginning, he felt like he just had to make this movie, but he didn't know if people (laughs) wanted to see it and was honestly very surprised at the positive reaction. And even though there was a positive reaction, this film certainly struck a nerve and was upsetting to, I don't know, it seemed like it was pretty much 50-50. Either people really enjoyed the film or got something out of it, or people just thought it was too violent, it was awful, and just why would you want to put something like this out in the world? And it's interesting if you uh, look at the, I mean, what the movie that won Best Picture that year, which was Rocky, um, which was also like a you know pretty successful career starting movie that was on a low budget, but what a polar opposite of a guy who's like trying to find his way, you know, who feels like he doesn't count. Rocky goes one way in the positive direction and like works his way to the top. And Travis Bickle, like the funny thinking of the two characters, yeah. But Taxi Driver has been a movie that uh, talking about it right now, like so many years later, it's. Uh, continued to be a movie that has influenced so many filmmakers, some of the best filmmakers, continues to be like a landmark film for Martin Scorsese. I mean, he's had one of the best careers that you can have as a filmmaker. You know, he started doing all these personal pictures. He feels like an interview said, you know, couldn't get made today, and he's probably right about that. Seems like he had this whole second career doing gigantic studio pictures with Leonardo DiCaprio and huge casts and gigantic budgets and he's still putting out exciting movies that are filled with energy so we should uh we should close out this discussion pretty soon but um i didn't want to dwell on this too much but it's fascinating in terms of art imitating life almost like the lineage of taxi driver being based off of this guy who you know tried to assassinate a political figure and then taxi driver coming out in inspiring John Hinckley to assassinate Ronald Reagan, almost doing so, injured Reagan and and several other people. Like he mimicked mimicked the Mohawk and everything, and it was yeah, and and uh, and that John Hinckley was like obsessed with Jodie Foster and like you know was obsessed with Taxi Driver, moved to the town where Jodie Foster was going to college and was like sending her poetry and trying to contact her, and you know she just like Betsy and Taxi Driver, just like, yeah, you're too much, man. Like, I'm just doing my own thing here. And then he thought, well, if I assassinate somebody like a political figure, I can be on her level. Like in his head, you know, he thought this will be a way that 
she'll look at him as something. And, uh, you know, this was a time period where there was several assassinations that led to people becoming famous, like uh, Mark David Chapman, who assassinated John Lennon. You're forever tied to the person you tried to assassinate or if you, you know, if you didn't, you know, like with Reagan, you know, but like that always comes up. It's like, oh yeah, we had a president. He got shot. John Hinckley was the guy that shot him. And there's a media frenzy because it's something to report on. And that was in the early eighties. I mean, today it's just like magnified by like a thousand, you know, with like social media and everybody, they want to be, to, to grab a little bit of fame, sort of like a dark stain on the movie's history but it is part of the lineage, so I felt like, you know, it was at least worth mentioning. Kind of just crazy, the inspired by an event and then inspiring an event uh, of assassinating somebody or making an attempt to assassinate somebody. And then on top of that, one thing that Paul Schrader did admit was to being inspired by Sarah Ann Moore in, uh, like, 75, I believe. She attempted to killed Gerald Ford, failed. Um, but the irony of the whole thing was that she got the cover of Newsweek as someone that attempted to to kill someone and then became famous from it. And he just thought, well, this is kind of crazy. Like, well, one, you tried to kill somebody and then you got famous and you didn't even succeed at it and you got famous. But just the craziness and irony of it all, that media can have so much influence over people, what they do, who they are after some massive big event like this. And how Taxi Driver ends, I think is kind of forgotten sometimes by at least people who I was initially around. Like Travis Bickle was made into somewhat of an icon and you know, someone who you have on a t-shirt with two guns and a mohawk or like putting his hand up to his head like he's going to kill himself like he does at the end of the movie is kind of nutty to me as an almost 40 year old that, you know, there's so many different interpretations of how the ending of this film, how the entire film goes, but specifically like the ending that this is, you know, sometimes a fantasy. Sometimes we live in a fantasy world and that Travis can become a hero by these horrible actions that he, okay, he happened to kill some bad people, but then he got famous. He became a hero. This was a byproduct of a failed assassination attempt that no one even knows about. Just the, um, I don't know. It's just, um, it, it's something that I think gets lost when looking at this film. And I don't know if that's based upon age or gender or what you derive from this film, but the interpretations of the point of Taxi Driver, I think, get lost on on some people. Maybe not so much anymore, because I do feel like this film is just as relevant as it was in 76. I don't know, Justin, how do you feel? Yeah, I think the early on the movie got sort of categorized as the vigilante movies of the 70s, like the Death Wishes and movies of that nature where, you know, you had this sort of anti-hero who was, even though Dirty Harry was a cop, you know, the sort of idea of like, oh, you can, you know, it's okay that they're killing these people because they consider them not part of functioning society. Whereas Taxi Driver, we forget that, yeah, the only reason he went and killed all these guys that were like pimps and low lives was because he failed at being able to kill like a political figure, you know. And so the 
the ending of Taxi Driver had he made that would be much different. You know, he would be incarcerated and people would villainize Travis versus making him this sort of like folk hero of the neighborhood. There's a somewhat ambiguous ending, like it's kind of an odd ending where Travis uh, sees Betsy again, you know, Mm -hmm. and they bring her back in. And and some people have interpreted, you know, film theorists have interpreted that uh, all this is like his sort of like anti-brain, you know, like his brain functioning after he's actually dead, that he actually died there after the slaughter he succumbed to his wounds from getting shot several times. I don't buy that, you know. I, I feel like the whole Betsy at the end of this movie is like putting a traditional kind of ending, but it's giving us closure. Like Travis, you know, went through this whole ordeal. He is looked at differently as Sybil Shepherd. You know, she sees him differently now. You know, she's like, oh, I read about you in the papers, but he's not excited about it, you know, anymore because he's, he's in a different state of mind. He's not obsessed with her anymore. But then we have this like weird little kind of paranoid face he does where you see like, no, this guy still has some problems that he hasn't got worked out. I mean, he's like, could be a ticking time bomb again. But yeah, you're right. It is easy to forget that like, wait a minute, he was actually going to do something pretty horrible before he stumbled upon just sort of out of circumstance decided I'm going to kill some different people. And I don't think Travis has never been not obsessed with Betsy. I think the point in the cab was that he was relishing the fact that she read about him in the newspaper. And he kind of is like, ah, you know, newspapers like play it up. He feels better than her, which is what he he always wanted to be. And now he actually feels like he really is above her. So that's why he can say without words, don't worry, I got this and like take off and not charge her the cab fee. And then after that is the scene you described where we see that his psychosis, that he, that his madness is still within him. It's just maybe dampened down for a second. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you know, if you set this in like the reality of like Travis's life pre everything that happened to him, you think that there, all the opportunities would have risen for him. And instead he's like, now I'm going to continue doing the job that I hate, you know, only, (laughs) only someone who's got like problems would, uh, say, you know what, after this, you know, uh, I'm going to go back to doing what I hate. Nothing has really changed for him. And we also see that by the way the movie opens and the way it ends with the oversaturation and colorization blending and melding usage of gels and how it starts out so melty at the beginning of the film and then that is exactly how it fades out too so in essence you could start this movie on a loop and it would just be like it never ends because travis is always going to be the same person just probably the next time that he does this, he's not going to have the angel on his shoulder that he had the first time. Yeah. I I mean, I would have been uh, totally fine with if it ended on him, like succumbing to his wounds and just it, it faded to black or like it mm-hmm. ended on that shot of the cops and then faded to black. And that was the end of the movie. I, I think that would be satisfying too, but I think it is interesting that they do this sort of epilogue kind of thing yeah. where, you know, I seem like I've been pretty critical in this episode, but <laughs> Here we go. I've got Number one. Five. I got, hey, we're about to close this <laughs> discussion five. out. I may as well throw one last thing in there. I feel like they could have found like a younger sounding voice to do the narration of Iris's dad. Mm, yeah. I was like always confused. I was like, wait, is is this her like grandpa or like, who's this? Like, <laughs> it just 
the guy that's doing the narration, I mean, it works, but it it sounds like, I mean, Iris is like 12 and a half. It, like, it sounds like they got like an 80-year-old man to do the narration for her father's <laughs> voice. And I mean, he would have been like Travis's age, you know, um, yeah, but whatever. Oh. Hey, wait, I've got, I've got one grape. Hang on. The one thing I cannot figure is, okay, so many theories about what is real. Is Travis ever hallucinating? Is that, are we seeing the delusions of a madman in some scenes or exaggerations in certain scenes? I want to know what the damn flowers are about. The infamous phone call scene where Travis is on the phone and sounds so pathetic while talking to Betsy and saying, did you even get my flowers? And that that scene is beautiful for so many reasons. But the scene following that is Travis in his apartment and there's a pan and we see all of these flowers. So like a lot of flowers, like Like, a lot. How many orders of flowers did he make? Yeah. And I have no doubt that he sent her a million flowers over the course of a week and a half or something. But did the flower industry work differently in the 70s and they like got sent to him? I can't imagine that that would have been a thing. So or did he not ever really send the flowers to her? I don't get the flower thing. I want to know what the flower. I mean, maybe they did send them to you because, I mean, you paid for them and like, you know, the flowers are going to die. So it's like they instead of refunding the money, maybe they just kept sending them to his house. Like a return to you sender kind of thing. Okay, I buy I buy that. So maybe he had to give his information in case something like maybe he's not the only person who's had their flowers rejected. So that's my nineteen seventies flower movie logic. It was a return to sender kind of deal. Yes, I buy it. Thank you, Justin. I needed some justification. That that's it. Technically, I think all those flowers are in there just so they could do that burning scene, and that's why Paul Schrader doesn't like that scene. But yes, it's it's funny though because when I was younger, when I used to watch this movie, I don't think I ever like picked up on the flowers or the fact that there was so many there. Um, but in that one shot, you're just like, "Damn, dude!" It looks like a funeral parlor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back with some final thoughts on Taxi Driver. I might even share an embarrassing high school story. Are you serious? Please do. Where I had a Travis Bickle uh, moment myself. Oh, um, God. But let's, uh, let's move on to our picks of the week. <laughs> uh, Lindsay, you did King of Comedy. This is one of those De Niro performances that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And uh, yeah. I was like shocked, but then also not shocked when you told me that you had never seen King of Comedy, which I think is a movie that a lot of people haven't seen. I don't think I'm alone in that. And I feel bad for sleeping on King of Comedy for so many years. For being a movie that is considered one of Scorsese's least appreciated, it is now one of my absolute favorites. And maybe it's viewing it 40 years after the fact, but I think I would have dug this movie back in 83 had I been an adult. This is not a straight-up comedy, as the title might indicate. Rather, it refers to the main character of Rupert Pupkin. Not Pumpkin, Pepkin, Pomplamuse, it's Pupkin mispronouncing his name is an ongoing gag that's very effective throughout the movie. And Robert De Niro plays Pupkin, a struggling stand-up comic who has an affectionate, disturbing, and all-consuming obsession with a popular late-night talk show host, Jerry Langford, played by comedy legend Jerry Lewis. Pupkin is not Jerry's only stalker. We also have Masha, played eerily well by a fresh-faced Sander Bernhardt, who, while Pupkin is obsessed on a professional level, Masha wants to be with Jerry. 
And though it may seem as if these two are coming at Jerry from opposite sides, it's all one and the same obsessive animal fetishizing him in one way or another. This is a stalker story, but Scorsese and writer Paul Zimmerman chose to illustrate a creepy story in such a way as to subtly reveal just how bothersome everything is. And you still, I mean, at least me, I don't completely villainize Pupkin or Masha, even though they kidnap Jerry eventually. But you could be annoyed by Pupkin's tenacity, squirming at his inability to take no for an answer, or made to feel uneasy at Masha's forthright sexual predator style. Now, clearly, King of Comedy is about the idea of celebrity, the effects of media, and the desire to make it. And though not clinically explored, it's also about the delusions one can succumb to when living in a fantasy. A person can put more weight on someone they idolize or the fantasy that we can create for them. Pupkin embodies this embarrassing quality which has been in existence ever since we were able to metaphorically put people on pedestals. This movie doesn't go for jump scares or give us too much of an idea of what set these two disturbed people on an obsessive path. There's not one bit of me that thinks that Pupkin or Masha's endgame is to kill Jerry, but King of Comedy does dare to seriously ask, what do Pupkin and Masha really want from Jerry? And that's where this movie veers into uncharted waters. Like, how far is it going to go? Pupkin wants to be a guest on Jerry's show, but is that it? It's really just about getting that Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame. For being a comic without any gigs, one aspect I absolutely loved is that we don't get to hear Pupkin's stand-up routine until the very end of the film. It's brilliantly simple to leave the audience wondering, well, is Pupkin even funny? Is his comedy just as pathetic as he is? Scorsese and Zimmerman cleverly hold this close to their chest, and by the time we do hear Pupkin's entire routine, what he says has now become completely loaded because we know Pupkin is a pretty disturbed guy. In some sense, it shines a bright spotlight on what stand-up comedy can be, like poking fun at the worst aspects or times in our lives. Pupkin recounts tales of his alcoholic mother and being bullied all in a humorous way, and maybe we'd be laughing if we were just seeing him for the first time. Instead, Scorsese's deliberate setup shows us Pupkin's darkness, where he's coming from, his seething anger beneath the surface, how he just wants someone to pay attention to him. A sort of, hey, look at me, I've always been this awesome, I have value as a person, and you were mean to be, and now who has the last laugh type of thing. The only reason I can see why this film didn't perform well when it was released is that, I guess, folks just were used to seeing De Niro as a tough guy and Scorsese being the man that brought that image to the screen. That's what I'm guessing. But geez, this is one of De Niro's best performances and truly shows what a versatile actor the man can be. It's also not as flashy of a Scorsese movie. It's intimate. You're with Pupkin the entire way and this conscious decision certainly lends itself to manipulate an audience into empathizing with someone who's not quite right. De Niro's ability to play a desperate, incredibly needy nerd without being a parody is constant without being exhausting. His forcefulness, passive-aggressive selfishness, and confidence, it's just a mishmash of qualities put together in a nightmarish character. Pupkin is a unique animal, which is one reason we fear him, but we also kind of want to see if he can land that big break for his comedy career. Equal to De Niro's performance is Jerry Lewis. Now remember, Jerry Lewis is from a whole other different era of Hollywood. He fully understood the idea of evolving fandom because he'd been a famous comic for so long. If you only know Lewis's comedy career, this is certainly a great film to watch because it is a solid 180 from what you know, save for his impeccable timing and a comedic hint in one of Pupkin's fantasies. Lewis is the top of the tops in this movie. 
And Sandra Bernhardt's performance is really underrated here. I heard her say that being an untrained actor is what landed her the role, that along with her ability to command a room and make men uncomfortable. All men except Scorsese, who saw she truly understood what Masha was supposed to embody. One more standout was Diane Abbott, who plays Rita, a bartender and childhood acquaintance of Pupkin's. It's obvious she knows everything that Pupkin is about, but still gives him the benefit of the doubt. The scene where Rita and Pupkin are thrown out of Jerry's house after Pupkin barges in has to be one of the most cringeworthy scenes in the entire movie, and you really, really feel for her in it. She's also the woman who plays the unamused porn theater attendant and taxi driver, which I laugh at that scene every time. Scorsese encouraged everyone to be open to improving scenes to create realness, and this was brilliant. Lewis and De Niro were seasoned actors, and Bernhardt felt confident playing for honesty. Nothing feels unprepared. The improv vibe really captures truth. All in all, this was a perfect pairing with Taxi Driver. Watch Taxi Driver first, then King of Comedy. Travis Bickle and Rupert Pupkin are cut from the same cloth, but are executed so drastically different. Both isolated men hiding their true hostility disappeared in the beautifully photographed yet pretty New York cityscape. And also, listen for Scorsese's mom, Catherine, as she plays Pupkin's mother, who is always yelling at him to be quiet in his basement layer of delusions. I'm glad you brought up Diane Abbott in this. I like her role in this as well as in Taxi Driver. And her role in King of Comedy is much larger than in Taxi Driver. But uh, yeah, what a great actor there, too. All right, Justin, it's your turn. I need to be reminded about Midnight Run. It has been so long. You know, with King of Comedy, I always feel like Sandra Bernhardt has always been underused in movies. But King of Comedy was like that movie figured out how to use her talent. And I feel like... Charles Grodin has had sort of the same career where most movies just never figured out how to like utilize what he what he has to offer, which is so great. This sort of normal looking guy, but has like this dry wit, but also has this like charm about him, you know, like you feel like you could be friends with him right away, um, but also could have this sort of like nagging annoying energy but Midnight Run was like the perfect movie for all of his like style and sensibilities. Uh, Midnight Run is a really fun, great 80s movie. Charles Grodin, again, plays this great character here called the Duke. He is a uh, accountant who's been working for a mob boss played by Dennis Farina. And this is like the time period where Dennis Farina was like in the height of him playing like mob bosses or like police detectives. And so he's just like constantly chewing scenery as the mob boss here. He's after Charles Grodin because Charles Grodin embezzled $15 million from them. Um, he claims because he did not realize that they were so dirty. And so he was going to steal this money and, and use the money to help people who are in need. So the mob is after Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin has been arrested. He's out on bail and he flees the bond set for him. And the bail bondsman, played by Joe Pantoliano, um, this whole movie is just like loaded with people who were much bigger faces in the 90s. So it's like every, even people with small parts in this movie, you'll say like, oh yeah, it's the guy from The Matrix. It's the guy from Memento. But the bail bondsman hires Robert De Niro's uh, Jack Walsh. Jack Walsh was a ex-Chicago cop, and now he's a Chicago bounty hunter. And uh, he tells him it's going to be a very simple midnight run. He's going to get $100,000 to track down and capture Charles Grodin. So he sets out to do this and uh, acquires Grodin pretty quickly. But it's funny because Rain Man came out the same year. <laughs> 
and the plots are very, very similar. Uh, even where uh, uh, Charles Grodin says, I can't fly, you know, they're about to get on the plane. And so um, De Niro is forced to like drive them across um, the country. And so then all this adventure in, ensues because the FBI is also after Charles Grodin's character. And so we essentially have this uh, action adventure movie where all of these different entities are after uh, Charles Grodin. And so he keeps getting in and out of custody of De Niro. And at first they, of course they clash, they hate each other, but as they spend more time together, they start to develop a bond, a trust of each other and an eventual friendship. That's actually pretty charming. De Niro is especially great in this movie. I don't think I ever really appreciated the way he plays the Jack Walsh character, but he's such a hardened character and you can tell that he has his past and De Niro's so great at opening up and just like letting off a little bit of steam with characters where like he gets really angry, but then he kind of settles in like, you know, he feels kind of bad. Um, but there's one particular scene in this where you know, they're really down on their luck. They're, they're out of money. And so De Niro and he's got Charles Grodin in handcuffs and De Niro has to go to his ex-wife's ex-wife's house to borrow money. And he hasn't seen his daughter in a while. And it's just this quick little five minute scene. And this scene would have been so cheesy, I think, with a different actor. But with Charles Grodin and De Niro, she approaches De Niro and she hasn't seen her dad in a while. And it's this touching little scene. And she like runs out to... <laughs> the car when they're about to leave and she's like here it's it's only 200 bucks but you know i saved up this money and you can take it and he's like i can't take your money honey you know and they kind of hug it out and he you know he says he says this sort of sad goodbye um and it's again it's just this quick little scene but it makes you care that much more for his character but at the same time de niro flexes some comedy muscle here i mean later on in the 90s and and pretty much for the last 20 years, I think he's been more known as like a comedic actor. But in the 80s, really, I think King of Comedy and Midnight Runner, the two movies where he sort of eases up a little bit off of his more serious persona that he's had in so many movies. And he really is kind of funny in this. He, he has a lot of great little uh, comedic timings um, between him and Grodin. So this movie is directed by Martin Brest, who I could really... I would love to do a whole podcast just on his career because I find it utterly fascinating. <laughs> but the the short of it is, is he was a this director who was hired to do war games and fired from that movie, then immediately hired to make Beverly Hills Cop, which was like this enormous hit. And then he follows it up with Midnight Run. And he has a kind of like a unique style of like he's able to direct comedy, which normally comedy movies, are, you know, they look a little flat and they're not as edgy, especially for the 80s, but he's able to mix in like sort of hard hitting action. So the action, even though, you know, there's comedy happening on the screen when the action comes in, you actually kind of feel like these characters are in danger and they could possibly be injured. So it does like amp up the intensity of the scenes whenever there's action. There is a lot of action in this movie. One particularly great scene involving a helicopter and Charles Grodin and De Niro getting chased. And Martin Brest also brings back uh, John Ashton, who played Taggart in the Beverly Hills Cop series. And he plays another bounty hunter who's hired because De Niro is not bringing in Grodin in on time or they don't think he will be. So he's also after the Charles Grodin character. And him and De Niro have... Uh, some conflicting moments that also um, bring out some humorous scenes. 
But yeah, just a, just a perfect uh, Saturday or Sunday afternoon movie. Turn it on around 2 p.m., crank the volume, and just have a good time. It's, it's cool to me that we both picked uh, these sort of two somewhat comedies that, that De Niro did in the 80s. Um, I think they bookend each other really nicely. Yeah, I might have to pop this one in tonight. I've I've always been a fan of Charles Grodin. I think that, like you said, he hasn't gotten a fair shake, but he's in a lot of great movies. Like Dabney Coleman was someone that was always a constant, I felt like, in my, in my childhood. Charles Grodin was always there. And uh, if I can add one extra thing to my Midnight Run commentary here. Yeah. There's a small role, and I think I mentioned this in one of our older episodes that we did when we did Magnolia, but there's a very small role in Midnight Run. It's one of Dennis Farina, the mobster. It's one of his wiser lackeys, uh, played by Philip Baker Hall. And in the movie, his name is Sidney. Paul Thomas Anderson loved Midnight Run when he was younger, and when he went to make his first movie, um, the short film, he cast Philip Baker Hall, but he loved the Sydney character in Midnight Run so much, he turned that character into a feature film called Sydney, which eventually was renamed Heart Eight. But it's if you if you haven't seen Heart Eight, watch Midnight Run and then follow it up follow it up with Heart Eight because it's almost as if Sydney quit his job working for Dennis Farina and then walked into, you know, moved to another state and then like Heart Eight would pick up right after the end of Midnight Run. All right. That sounds kind of fun. And they, he even dresses the same. His cadence is the same. I mean, he's he's. I mean, he plays it like he does the same character in hmm. in Heart Eight as he did in Midnight Run. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for that, Justin. I really do want to watch that tonight. I got to make some graphics. Maybe I'll put that on. Well, those are our picks of the week. A great De Niro double feature for you: King of Comedy and Midnight Run. And again, R.I.P. Charles Grodin. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Whenever there's a slam dunk of a Murray moment, it feels like I've passed some milestone. Like this one, I'm about to tell you. It's one of the more publicized of Billy's escapades and easily one of my favorites. Thankfully, this story comes directly from a story recounted by Bill himself. He can be a teller of tall tales, but I 100% believe him on this one. Picture this, Oakland, California, 2014. Billy's promoting St. Vincent, headed to the Toronto International Film Festival in just a few days for the first ever Bill Murray Day, an event which was our Murray moment back in episode 64 of Ginger Snaps. As the story goes, Billy's in a cab, leaving Oakland and heading to Sausalito, which is more or less 30 miles away. It's the dead of night, and Billy and this cabbie have a good 45 minutes of travel ahead. How could one not strike up a conversation? It quickly comes out that the cabbie's a saxophone player. And you're talking to the right guy here. Billy's a well-known music lover and musician himself. 
Well, when do you practice? Bill asks. The cabbie tells him it's just so hard to squeeze it in because he works upwards of 14-hour days. Billy continues to probe and asks where he keeps his sack since he doesn't have a lot of time to practice. It's in the trunk, the cabbie responds. Well, that's two and two, Bill says. Pull over. Get it out of the trunk. I know how to drive a car. That's right, you guys. Bill Murray drives this taxi while the cabbie's in the back seat playing his sax the entire way to the destination. It's moments like this that really hit me. The times when we take a step out of the normal, run-of-the-mill, blinders on the day, and are just really present in the moment. Not only did he play to Sausalito, Bill said, but we stopped and we got barbecue. Bill said it was something like 2, 2.15 in the morning, and they stopped at what some would consider a sketchy-looking rib place outside of Oakland. And his newfound cabbie friend had some trepidation, but Bill reassured him. Relax, man. You've got the horn. We're cool here. The sax playing starts drawing a crowd even so early in the morning. Bill said there were people looking around going, who's this crazy white dude playing this thing? Out of all the Murray moments I've heard over the years, this is among one of my favorites. I only wish I could have tracked down this cabbie's name. So if you're out there, the guy who this happened to, please contact me. It was a beautiful night, Billy said. If you saw that moment, and as they'd say, you're available, you'd see it, you'd make the connection and do it right. Two guys truly living in the moment right here. Billy's got a great story out of this, sure. But I hope the cabbie not only got that, but also a realization that he's got to make some time for himself. Making a conscious decision to live in the moment can be a really beautiful thing. Short and sweet for you, Justin. (laughs) That was very short and sweet. I wish I could find out more information, but it's really only derived from Bill telling this story one time. And yeah, I can't, could not for the life of me find the name of the guy. If you, if you couldn't find it, it, it has to be hard to find because I know you dig pretty deep. I do. I just find it hard to believe that someone hasn't found it, you know? Yeah. At least to get his side because that uh, they were together for a while, and that is a story. You know, I would want to tell that story. That guy had to have had a Facebook post. Come on. It has to be somewhere. <laughs> well, thanks for that Murray moment. Yeah, of course. Did you have any uh, final thoughts on Taxi Driver before we close things out? Um, Man, I have a lot of thoughts that could be never-ending about Taxi Driver. But one thing that got a good laugh out of me of just like, oh my God, are you serious? Was we, we talked about earlier the climactic shots, the, the big violent ending. There's that overhead shot, right? Where the camera goes up and just slowly levitates and removes itself from the room, just observing all of the carnage underneath. Well, it took three months, I think, to actually take out that entire ceiling of that building. And it was a condemned building. They did a lot of filming in condemned buildings for this movie. But it took that long to take the ceiling out in order to make this work. And after all of that work and getting it right and, you know, we're down to this moment, filming for that day had gone long with child actor Jodie Foster, and they had 20 minutes to shoot that entire scene with the utmost concentration and knowing we've got to get this done right now and this is going to be a beautiful shot but we really got to focus on it so when you look at that scene know that they had 20 minutes to do it and it's just rather ironic you know when you have all this build-up time to to plan for something like that and then it's like okay you got to get it done right now everything i've read from scorsese was said he just said this is such a miserable shoot, like yeah. always under pressure, yeah. Yeah. always under pressure and like just trying to get through the day and get get some shots off. 
Yeah, he sounded emotionally like he went through a lot. Like he was having trouble sleeping and just like was he was rough too during it. What about you, Justin? Do you have any final thoughts? I thought I'd just share this really embarrassing story that involves taxi driver and Yes. When I was seventeen, uh, Taxi Driver was my favorite movie. I mean, it's still one of my favorite movies, but I was like especially hyped about this movie when yeah. I was in high school and in college, you know, had the you know, I was one of those guys you were talking about who had the Travis Bickle poster hanging on his wall. <laughs> and I was dating this girl at the time and she was having like a sort of like a sleepover type party. And, you know, she's like, oh, well, come over, you know, bring a movie. They're like ordering a pizza. So I thought, oh, this is, you know, this will be fun. I'm going to go hang out with, you know, four high school girls. And <laughs> I, I was like, I got the perfect movie. I'll bring my favorite movie of all time, Taxi Driver. <laughs> So I thought this was, you know, such a Travis and Bickle moment for myself thinking, uh, yeah, this is a this is a movie that four high school girls that are going to oh, want yeah, to sit and definitely. watch on a Saturday night. So definitely. So we're about uh, halfway God. through Taxi Driver and, uh, you know, th- there's not much. Uh, and, and granted, this is a time period where no one can uh, look at their phones when they're bored. So, yeah. you know, you're just sort of feeling the boredom in the room. And then uh, it's like this movie ended and everybody's just like why did we watch this This is like the worst movie we've ever seen you know many years later i'm watching taxi driver and i was like oh god this was like travis taking betsy to the porn theaters so did you maybe point out favorite scenes from the movie when it was happening were were you aware of i'm i'm certain that i probably said all kinds of like embarrassing nerdy stuff (laughs) that i've just like sort of like scrubbed from my memory Do you guys know uh, De Niro won the uh, Academy Award right before he filmed this movie? But <laughs> Oh, we would have been friends. We would have been friends, Justin. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's not what you bring to a sleepover. Did she break up with you after that? She didn't break up with me, but um, I didn't get invited over to any more like uh, girl parties. <laughs> Such a Travis Bickle yeah. moment. Yeah. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that. I love that story. <laughs> You know, De Niro and I share a birthday. I probably say that every single episode that we've ha- talked about De Niro, but we do. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, I feel like I've I've shared this multiple times that my wedding anniversary is on Scorsese's birthday and that I was married in the hotel that they shot Casino in. You know what? Maybe somebody hasn't listened to the Casino episode. Maybe they don't know that. Yeah. I think that, that is incredible and really cool. Oh, man. I'm so glad that we went back and revisited Taxi Driver. This was, like I said at the beginning, a lot to live with for a couple weeks. But I have found myself still having a little bit of leftover Travis Bickle like on me. You know, I don't know. I I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to shake him with as much that I've watch this movie and that's not not a bad thing i think it's just uh this movie just sticks with you as far as this last year has been concerned i think that we picked the appropriate time to do taxi driver where things are like getting a little bit better and and less uncertain i don't think this would have been a good movie for us to have like done eight months ago right in the heart of the pandemic well with that said maybe the next episode should be on a lighter note yeah we're we're gonna we're gonna bring it up tempo here we're gonna (laughs) We're going to do a comedy for <laughs> next episode. We've got the great mockumentary classic Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman uh, coming up next. And I'm delighted to jump into that after um, sitting with Taxi Driver for <laughs> multiple weeks. 
I know Waiting for Guffman so well, and it's been a couple years since I watched it, so it'll be really fun to... Corgi, we love you! <laughs> I can always go back to the Dairy Queen. Some people just come in for a coat. <laughs> oh, God. I can't wait. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our episode on Taxi Driver. If you haven't already, please do rate and review this episode if you're able. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We also have a YouTube page, which has all of our old episodes and any videos we've done, any promo stuff that we've done. You can also find an archive of those episodes on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. On there, we also have a store, so much merch that can be purchased. All that money will help us produce a better podcast for your ears, so please do buy something. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you.